All of us have been and are being shaped by our experiences. Your experiences in your family of origin has shaped you. Your relationship experiences with those of the opposite sex, and even some of you who may have indulged in an illicit sexual relationship with someone of the same sex, those experiences have shaped you. The community in which you were raised has shaped you. Your educational experiences or lack thereof has shaped you. Your experiences with church and church folk have shaped you. And yes, every time you wrap your mind around another senseless killing, police brutality, and the narrative of a false prophet claiming to be an evangelist is shaping you. The same was true in the case for King Solomon. When you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you will find and note that it is a compilation of Solomon's experiences. And Solomon opens up the book of Ecclesiastes by saying what you would think he would say at the close of the book. Solomon says, meaningless, meaningless. All of life and its experiences are utterly meaningless. He says everything that man does to toil under the sun is meaningless. That pleasure that you are seeking, meaningless. Laughter, meaningless. Drinking and folly, meaningless. Building that huge home, planting gardens, and even erecting parks, Solomon says, are all meaningless. But it's only when we get to the close of the book that we see Solomon exclaim what is truly meaningful. Because in Ecclesiastes 12 and 13, Solomon tells us sternly, fear God and obey his commands. Solomon teaches us not to live our lives based on our futile and fleeting experiences. And though our experiences, brothers and sisters, shape the way that we think, watch this, we must never allow our experiences to shape our theology. We must never allow our experiences to shape our theology. And that's what I'd like to talk to you this morning about, my brothers and sisters the dangers of an experience-based theology. The dangers of an experience-based theology. Theology is defined as the systematic study of God and of religious things. Theology literally means thinking about God. It is a great writer pastor, preacher of yesteryear, A.W. Tozer, who said this very important statement. Tozer said, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. Now just pause and let that sink in for a moment. Tozer says that what you think about God, 
What I think about God is the most important thing about us. And if that statement is true, and I believe it is, how important is it for us, my brothers and sisters, to make sure that no matter what we do, that our theology is right? Good theology is the same as having a firm foundation. And Paul says something about having a firm foundation in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. I want you to turn there for a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, NLT, here's how it reads. Paul says, because of the grace that has been given to me, he says, I have laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now, others are building on it, but whatever, whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful. Next verse, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. Paul tells us very plainly that God has given him the grace, the wisdom, the knowledge, and the provision to lay a firm foundation. And that foundation he's speaking of is theology and doctrine. But what he knows is, is that his time is fleeting and coming to an end. And though he's laid a firm foundation, he gives a stern warning to anybody, to any of us who proclaim, who teach, who preach the word of God. He says, listen, I realize that others are going to come and build on this foundation, but but let me give you this warning. Be very careful. Watch what you say. Watch how you live your life. Be very careful. Be very mindful of what you're building on this foundation, for no one can lay any other foundation than the one which has already been laid, and that foundation name is Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I believe here in the 21st century that even though God's Word says what it says, that we are living in an age where a different and new foundation is being erected. And this foundation is being erected on the basis of emotions and experiences. And we are entering into an era of excluding biblical truth. Why is this sermon important? We could be speaking about anything. We could be talking about the fruit of the spirit, the armor of God. We could be talking about marriage, any other thing. Why is this sermon important? Why is it important to preach it now? Here's the reason. Because the church has become misaligned in its messaging. The church has misaligned messaging. Listen, brothers and sisters, we've made the church white. We've made it black. We've made it left wing. We've made it right wing. We've made it Democrat. We've made it Republican. We've made it soft on sin. We've made it money minded and materialistic. And the tragedy of it all is, is that we're trying to force God and God's people to pick sides. I'm reminded of a story. You know it oh so well. Don't turn it right now. But when you get home, you can look over it again for your own personal review. I'm reminded of a story in Joshua chapter six. Well, Joshua goes in, and we know that Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the Bible says, and the walls came tumbling down, and we sing songs about that, but I want to tell you, before there's a chapter 6, there's a chapter 5. 
And in chapter 5, the Bible tells us that Joshua was approaching the land of Jericho. And as Joshua approached the land of Jericho, the Bible says that he looked up and he saw a man with his sword drawn. And the Bible says that Joshua approached this man and he asked him one vital question. He said, sir, whose side are you on? Are you on our side or are you on the side of our enemy? And to Joshua's dismay, the man said, neither. He said, as captain of the Lord's army, I'm on God's side. And what the man was trying to tell Joshua and what he's trying to tell us right now is that I have not come to take sides. I've come to take over. And I believe that God is looking for a group of men and women, boys and girls who will allow the word of God to now take rulership and take over in their lives. We shall not allow our experiences and our emotions to dictate and tell us what we would do when God's word gives us the final authority. Listen to me carefully. When our belief system is drawn from our personal experiences, we often end up approaching and developing our theology from the vantage point of our racial identity and political bent. Case in point, many of you may not know about the formation of the Southern Baptist Convention. The Southern Baptist Convention has been around since 1845. And the sole basis of that convention was this. There were northerners, southerners, who were in the same convention, they were all Baptists. And the northerners said that we need to get rid of of slavery. Slavery has no place in the church. But the southerners said, no, not only do we want slaves, but we want our ministers and pastors to own them as well. And the Southern Baptist Convention was formed strictly and solely on the basis of owning slaves. Not by doctrine, that wasn't a problem, but slaves and slavery. And they made the argument that slaves, that Africans who were brought over from Africa, were nothing more than property and animals without souls. And if you are an animal without a soul, I can treat you any way that I want to treat you. And they convinced themselves through their own line of argument, through their own theology, through their own way of reading and interpreting scripture, that there's nothing to black folk. But if you think they are alone, you're sadly mistaken. Because there are black groups who are doing the same thing right now. They are preaching hatred from the pulpit. They are calling white people devils who are destined to go to hell. And they are trying to make the scripture fit their narrative. But I wish that all of us would just take a moment and slow down and read what the word of God says. Because the Bible tells us clearly in Ephesians chapter 6 and 12, for we wrestle not against flesh and against blood. My problem is not your skin. Your problem with me is not your skin. There is an issue that is spiritual that is taking place. We wrestle not against flesh and against blood. We are wrestling against powers. We are wrestling against principalities. 
We are wrestling against the rulers of the darkness of this world. We're wrestling against spiritual wickedness in high places. See, I firmly believe, brothers and sisters, that right now we are being tested by God. And because we're being tested by God, we've got to be sure and careful about what we are allowing in our sphere of influence. Because that will and that can alter our perception of things as the test comes. God is testing us to see if we will form our thoughts and our theology based on his word instead of the world. And what we've got to do is be careful that while in testing that we aren't drawing our theology from worldly people, worldly organizations, or worldly news cycles. Not by black supremacists, not by white supremacists, because all of those mediums, people, and organizations just stir up unhealthy emotions. That brings us to our first danger. Danger number one. Experience-based theology rationalizes emotionalism. Experience-based theology rationalizes emotionalism. Now, emotions, as you know, in and of themselves are very natural. There are times in all of our lives when we're going to be happy. There are times where we're going to be sad. There are times where we're going to be disappointed. There are times where we're going to be excited. But emotionalism is living life through the perspective of your emotions. And it's allowing your emotions to rule. And that, brothers and sisters, is quite unhealthy. You see, emotionalism unchecked will begin to teach you to look at life through an experiential lens instead of a biblical one, which will put you in complete derision with God because you are no longer focused on God and his word and his standards because you are so focused on creating your own standards. Emotionalism will make you focus on your world rather than God's word. Let's validate that in Scripture. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Very familiar passage of Scripture. Here's how it reads. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say that you must not eat from the fruit? of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, watch this, you must not eat it or touch it because if you do, you'll die. Here's what Satan's response was. He says, you won't die? The serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened. And as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Verse 6, the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful. This fruit was delicious. She wanted the wisdom that it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. I'm not sure if you've ever taken much time to look at these scriptures 
to see what Satan and the dynamic that Satan played. But I want to show you some things that you may not have seen before. What Satan does is, in his folly, is that he pulls and plays on Eve's emotions. Look at verse 4. He says in, 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 in verse 4, you won't die. The serpents replied to the woman. Emotional trigger number one, God hasn't been truthful to me. He tells her plainly, he says, no, 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 no. You won't lie. You won't die. In other words, God's lying to you. And you all know that there's nothing worse than for somebody to lie to us, right? That is an emotional trigger all day long to feel like somebody is lying to you. God lied to me. He hasn't been truthful to me. Emotional trigger number two is found in verse five. He says, God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it. Emotional trigger number two, God has been holding out on me. God hasn't been truthful to me. Emotional trigger one. But then secondly, God has now, he, you know, he's been holding out on me. In other words, there's more to this tree than what I've been told. And that's how we're, there's more to this life than what I've been told. I can have this. I can attain this in life. God has been holding out on me. Verse 5, he says, God, God, God knows your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it. And then here it is. And you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Emotional trigger number three, I can become more than I thought I was worth. <laughs> There's more to me than I've been told. All of these, brothers and sisters, are emotional triggers that Satan pulled and played on Eve. God hasn't been truthful to me. God's been holding out on me. And I can become more than what I thought I was worth. Notice the personal pronoun that plays a part in this line of argument. It is I and me. God hasn't been truthful to me. God has been holding out on me. I can become more than I thought I was worth. Eve's emotion-based experience moved her away from God's truth. She looked without, she looked within, but she never looked up. And that's exactly what most of us do when our emotions and experiences get the best of us. We look out to worldly sources. We look in for our own sources, but we never look up. The Bible tells us clearly, Proverbs 14 and 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end is death. Experience-based theology rationalizes emotionalism. But secondly, my brothers and sisters, experience-based theology redefines the gospel. Experience-based theology redefines the gospel. I love listening to good preachers. And for me, the older, the better. I love listening to Tony Evans and Chuck Swindoll and Terry Anderson and, well, I guess Pastor Adams is getting old because I love listening to him too. 
But this new crop of preachers that's coming up concerns me. Because they care more about sound bites than sound doctrine. There's a guy who passes a church in Alexandria, Virginia. I won't call his name because if I say it, you'll probably know who he is. He leads a mega church. In eight years, the church grew from 2,500 people to 8,000 people, 7,000 people. And I was watching this guy, and I used to enjoy watching him until I really started listening to his theology. And one day this man was preaching, and he literally said that there are certain things in the Bible and accounts even with Jesus Christ that he has doubts about. The preacher said, the pastor said of this 7,000-member church, that as it relates to the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, he says, when I look at that, I don't see a way. I don't see how that's possible. He says, but I do have an explanation for it. That's why he went wrong, isn't it? How do you explain a miracle? He says he took a trip to Africa. And while on his trip in Africa, he had an African tour guide. And he said while he was in Africa with his tour guide, this tour guide explained to him how Africans travel in large numbers and quantities. He said that it's likely that when Africans travel in large groups, that none of them have very much. He says, but the thing is, is that whatever they have, whatever food, whatever drink, whatever water they have, all Africans are willing to share that with those who are with them. And he said that what happened with the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 was that the people noticed that their brothers and sisters were hungry. And even though I didn't have much, I gave what I had, and you gave what you had. And by the time they got through giving, everybody was fed. He totally misconstrued, realigned, and redefined what the Bible said about the miracle of Jesus Christ. And he said that the miracle wasn't the multiplication of the food. The miracle was that God changed stingy hearts. Same minister, same preacher, same pastor on a different platform also said that he sees no viable way that Jesus Christ can be the only way to the Father and to heaven. Pastor of a Baptist church in Virginia says that he does not understand, he does not see how Jesus Christ can be the only way. He said because everybody has experiences with God. And just because I believe in Jesus Christ and you believe in, in, in Buddha or Muhammad, that doesn't mean that I have more access to Jesus or God than you do. Something is wrong with that line of argument. And here's what I see, brothers and sisters. If, if, if there are many ways to God, then there are no stern conditions to get to God. If there are no conditions, there's no need for a connection. If there's no need for a connection, there's no cause for God's concern. If there's no cause for God's concern, there's no case for Calvary. If there's no case for Calvary, there's no room for the cross. And if there's no room for the cross, there's no point of a Christ. My Bible tells me specifically in John 14 and 6, Jesus says, I am the way the truth, 
and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. My Bible tells me in 1 Timothy 2 and 5, there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind. That is the man, Jesus Christ. My Bible tells me in John 1 and 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And when you drop down to verse 14, he says, and the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. There is but one way to the Father, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Experience-based theology rationalizes emotionalism. Experience-based theology redefines the gospel. But my brothers and sisters, experience-based theology must be rooted out by the word. It rationalizes emotionalism. It redefines the gospel, but it must be rooted out by the word. If you're anything like me, there are times in, in, in your life where in your home, your, your clogs get, your, your sinks get clogged up. And uh, it happens to us once or twice a year, and you come home and uh, you find sewer water in your bathtub. You find water spewing out of your, um, of your toilet. You may find some water in your sink that shouldn't be there standing water, and it stinks. There's no amount of liquid Drano that you can pour in that toilet that will erase the situation that's going on. There is but one solution to that problem, and that is you've got to call somebody who has a rotor rooter. And if you call somebody who has a rooter, they'll bring out what they call a snake. And the function of that snake is, is that they get on top of your house or they may find a spout in, in your grass, but they'll run that snake through your line. And here's the thing, the snake has got to run long enough it's got to run hard enough, and it's got to run deep enough. But once it gets to running through your lines, it will unclog those drains and pull out of everything, all the sewer water, all of that bad stuff that's in your drainage system. Well, I believe, my brothers and sisters, that there's a lot of sewage in our lives. There's some sewage that is brought about by the experiences that we have had. Some of us have had some real serious experiences in our lives that have brought sewer. Some of you on the side of my voice have been physically and emotionally abused. That has brought some real sewer in your life. Some of you are victims of domestic violence. And as a result of that, it's brought some sewage in your lines. Maybe some of you have been neglected and and rejected by a mother and a father. And that's brought some sewage in your line. Some of you have experienced church hurt. And that's brought some sewage in your lines. And maybe God didn't come through the way that you expected. And that disappointment has now turned into doubts about God. Brothers and sisters, there's only one remedy to this problem. You've got to have your life rooted out. And just like that snake that comes in the drainage system, the word has got to run deep enough, it's got to run long enough, and it's got to run hard enough. And when it runs deep enough, long enough, and hard enough, 
It will unclog the drain in your life. But only the word of God can do it. Only the word of God can do it. Here's what the Bible says. Colossians 3 and 16. It says, let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. He says, teach and counsel each other with all the spiritual wisdom that he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. Look at that very intently. He says, let the message about Christ, the message about Christ is the word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's, the Word is Jesus. Jesus is the Word. Let the message about Jesus Christ fill your lives with all of its richness. And it will pull out, it will root out all of that drain in your life. But then there's another passage of Scripture we need to look at. 2 Timothy 3.16. Here's what the Bible says. All of Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and it teaches us to do what is right. There are six reasons that we must allow Scripture to root out our lives. Six reasons, write this down, that you must allow Scripture to root out our lives based on the word of God. The Bible says that all of the scripture is inspired by God. That literally means that it's God breathes. All scripture is God breathes. All scripture is also useful. All scripture teaches truth. All scripture uncovers sin in our lives. All scripture corrects us. And all scripture teaches us wisdom. Scripture is God breathed. Everything that you see in the word of God, God intended it for be to be in his Bible. And because it's in the word of God, it's also useful. But not only is it useful, it's useful to teach us truth. You cannot allow the experiences that you are having in your life to take away the truth of God's word. Yes, your experiences are real, but God's word is more real. It's God-breathed. It's useful. It teaches us truth. But then it also uncovers the sin in our lives. That's why many of us don't want to read God's word. We don't want to submit to the authority of God's word. We don't want to become disciples reading God's word because it will uncover those areas in our lives that we would rather remain covered up. But when you read the word of God and you allow the word of God to read you, you will see that it will uncover all of those areas, all of that sin, all of that wickedness, all of that destruction all of that mayhem that is in your life, it will uncover, it will unravel all of the sin in your life. And when it unravels the sin in your life, it is now beginning to correct you. All of us have to be corrected in some shape, form, or fashion. And it doesn't matter if you're young or old, there are some thoughts that you have, there are some experiences that you've had 
And there are some ways that you have that need to be corrected. And when you sort through the word of God and allow the word of God to sort through you, it will correct your actions. It will address the sin that's in your life. And here's lastly what it'll do. It'll teach you wisdom. It'll teach you wisdom. It will teach you to do what is right. That's our message this morning. We can't allow our experiences, neither can we allow our emotions to dictate what God's word says we are to live in this life. It is important that all of you know and note that we must stand before the king one day and give an account for all of our actions. And the Lord is going to know two things. Number one, he's going to know, want to know, did you know me? And number two, what did you do for me? And God could care less about some of this thing, these things that we think are really important. God could care less about how black you are. He could care less about how white you are. The only thing God cares about is is the light of Jesus Christ permeating through your life as a Christian. Have you led others to a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you developing disciples for his kingdom? You see, when you combine the righteousness of Colossians 3.16 with 2 Timothy 3.16, what you'll see is, is you'll have a recipe for righteousness. And that's what God is looking for. He's looking for a group of believers who will allow the word instead of the world, who will allow the experiences that they have in the word to dictate the experiences that they have in the world. Yes, we will speak out against racial injustice and equality. Yes, we will speak out against the problems that plague our own communities. Yes, we will speak truth to power, but we will not alter God's word to fit our agenda. And whether you're in this audience or you're listening to us by way of live stream, you've got to allow the word of God to root out anything in your life that does not look like him. We must be committed to the truth of God's word. If not, we will fall victim to an experience-based theology.